1: Please note this podcast contains details surrounding a murder, which some people may find disturbing. Previously on the storyteller, Murder Most Foul. With her Dane court looming, Pamela Gurley drops an 11th hour bombshell, summoning her lawyer to prison to tell him it was her boyfriend who killed Melanie.
2: I got a call to go to the prison to speak to Pamela. And it was at that stage, for the first time, but she disclosed to me she had not killed Melanie, that it had in fact been her boyfriend Chris Taylor.
1: The revelation came after previously confessing to police, her mother, and friend Claire Forbes that she was responsible.
3: She'd said I'm getting charged with that, and I was like, but what? What you did it? And she was like, yeah, and I don't know why.
1: I'm Isla Traquair, a storyteller. I was the young journalist who covered this murder, my first of many. And now I'm going to share with you this story, which is still as shocking today as the day it happened. I'm hunting down the people at the heart of this case, most importantly, the killer, to see if I can finally get some answers and discover the truth behind this murder most foul. This is the storyteller, Murder Most Foul, written, produced and edited by me, Isla Trequeir. February 2000, after spending the millennium behind bars on remand, Pamela Gurley changes her story. Her solicitor Shane Campbell is floored by her new admission. She'd barely reacted during their numerous meetings, where he showed her the mountain of evidence the prosecution had against her. A bloodied knife and clothes found in her flat, a mass of Melanie's possessions stuffed in bags, and three taped confessions.
2: That was really a bolt from the blue. I can't recall exactly how long it would have been before the case was due to call in court, but it was somewhere in the region of 10 days, no more than two weeks. The whole situation had changed. We had gone from, rightly or wrongly, assuming that the matter was going to be dealt with by way of a guilty plea, to now uh, preparing for a trial. Uh, And effectively, there had been little preparation up to that point uh, in relation to a a trial. When Pamela called me to the prison and told me that it had been Chris Taylor, that she had not committed the murder, that came as a little bit of a shock um, and then things had to move very, very quickly. Then at that stage, I had to try and obtain the services of an alternative advocate who would be available then to conduct a trial as we were now clearly in a trial uh, situation.
4: My name is Edward Targowski QC. I am a Queen's Counsel. My involvement in this case was that I was instructed, along with a junior counsel, to assist me uh, to defend Pamela Gourley on the charge of murder in Aberdeen High Court. I was asked to take it on from another Queen's Counsel who had um, left the case and it was taken on at reasonable uh, short notice.
2: Everything else was put to to one side. Uh, We arranged uh, a consultation uh, between myself, Pamela, and um, Mr. Tsiargowski. So the wheels are then set in motion. I have got to contact um, the Faculty uh, of Advocates, uh, and then obviously we're obtaining a detailed statement from Pamela, with regard to her position
4: the first impression was that it was unusual in that one had a very young woman um a girl basically uh, charged with um, brutally murdering uh, another girl in her own in her own house which uh, is unusual. It's not the usual sort of Scots method of uh, killing each other.
5: My name is Karen Cameron and in 1999 I was a Procurator Fiscal Depute based in Aberdeen. The police are obviously the first uh, port of call in making investigations um, and once they've um, completed their investigations they report to the Procurator Fiscal. So basically all uh, witness statements are provided um, together with all the evidence that they've compiled in the course of their investigations and my role would be to look through that uh, to decide if there was any further investigations to be carried out to interview and um key witnesses that I thought were necessary and basically to prepare a pack uh, which was ultimately used by the um, the advocate deputy who would be prosecuting the case in court In broad terms, um, We were looking at at, um, a confession from Pamela Gurley. Um, There had been recovery of the apparent murder weapon from her home. Um, There was uh, forensic evidence um, from items found belonging to Melanie uh, found within Pamela's home. Um, And there was also events after the murder had been perpetrated where uh, Pamela was uh, seen using... A bank card belonging to Melanie and a, a gift voucher belonging to Me- Melanie after the event um, so in general terms there was a significant amount of evidence that suggested that she was the perpetrator
1: When you saw the the evidence what, what was your impression of that because obviously it's pointing the finger at her
4: Yes, um, clearly there's enough evidence there for the Crown to charge her with murder and to bring her to trial um, Nonetheless, I act on her instructions and she gave explanations as to how the various pieces of um, Crown evidence could be explained and that's what uh, myself and the legal team involved in defending her uh, have to do Which has to be put forward no matter what defence it is or how ludicrous it might seem I'm not saying that was the case in this case But uh, no matter how ludicrous the defence might seem to those putting it forward, our job is to put it forward.
1: How did you prepare Pamela for what she was about to go through over the nine days?
4: Well, um, it's not really my job to prepare um, a client for trial. Um, The evidence had been explained to her at consultation, the strength of the evidence had been explained to her at consultation. And it's really up to her to um, behave in whatever way she chooses to behave in, uh, in the dock. Certainly she was well aware of the evidence against her and knew it would be a hard task.
1: The legal teams weren't the only ones preparing for the trial. As is the case in Scots law. there's effectively radio silence after someone is charged. So the public knew nothing of the evidence that was about to emerge or indeed the fact Pamela was now claiming her boyfriend was responsible for the murder. Former journalist Shona Hendry says it was one of the biggest trials in many years.
6: Well, I remember I was due to go on a, a press trip. In the I think it would have been the, the the February, and I I can remember that the the date had changed, for for whatever reason, um, and the the new date that was that was arranged um was actually when the the trial was um was was due to be held, um, so so many of the journal the local journalists in, um here in Aberdeen and um. Probably further afield, um, were intending to come on the and um, the the press trip, but they they couldn't because it was so important. Everybody wanted to be there. Everyone you know, knew that they had to be um, in in court to cover the um cover you know the the trial for as long as the um as long as the it took it really sticks in my mind. I can remember it so clearly that um yeah it was just one of those a date that just couldn't you just couldn't be um missed. It couldn't be avoided. We absolutely had to had to be there.
1: Melanie's mother, Susan Patrick, and husband Paul were also anxiously awaiting the trial, embracing themselves to not only hear what happened to her, but they were also about to come face-to-face with the accused killer for the first time.
7: And we actually got shown around it before and where she would be. And as you, the judge is straight in front of you. And then she's her back was to us, we were mm-hmm. up the back and the witness stand is in there like she came and wherever she went, there's this massive mirror behind Lord Marnach, must have been, because she asked Kevin to be moved because she kept he kept catching her eye and there again that was her She was uncomfortable
1: that the victim's then- brother uh, was able to have eye contact yeah. through a mirror with her
7: yeah. and she was brought in but she was she was just short and like that Auburn coloured hair and little. I don't know what I expect, but she was just nothing like. She was just tiny, white skin, just yeah, white expressionless, skin. totally expressionless. Yeah. It was like a shark cold face.
4: Well, basically, when she walked in, I remember saying to Susan, "That did that." Quinn was told it was a woman. Yes, I'm well, not putting steady. You just think. We've got some big boots like the thing here' going to come in that's like built like a tank and females only this size, you know, and for what it happened to her you know you, you got this thing God, she's, she's not much bigger than Melanie.
7: The only reaction I ever saw her with was when her mum went about this boy box and I think she cried.
1: Pamela's mother Eileen, was called as a prosecution witness because Pamela had phoned her from prison and confessed the murder. As former journalist Alison Shaw recalls,
8: and this is the evidence of from uh, Pamela Gurley's mother uh, in a phone call uh, from prison when Pamela told her it was me. I mean, Pamela was in Craiginch's jail in Aberdeen, and this tape was played to the high court trial. And her poor mother, because in the tape you can hear her mother saying, "But you never killed that woman. You somebody helped you." And uh, Pamela replies in this, just a bare whisper, this, this one word, hell. And then, and then she went on to say, Oh, uh, they'll give me 15 years. It's all about her. Mm-hmm. It's not about what she'd done to this poor, literally defenseless young girl who wouldn't have hurt a fly. For what? For this paltry amount of about 20, 30 pounds? Anyway, she, th- this conversation, her, um, her mother insists, you know, she, she, she insists you, know, you, but she didn't do it. Um, and she says, you know, somebody else did it. I, she says, I know you, she says to her daughter, but um, McGurley says, nobody. And, and her mum then goes on to say, but that's not true, don't ever go there. She calls her Pammy, didn't know that she had a nickname like that. She says, I know you, I brought you into the world. And that's how mother wants to believe, mm-hmm. that, you know, no child of theirs is capable Of this, but it's a fairly tearful conversation, um, on Gourley's part as well, um, and her mother at one point says, "Was it you or?" And she doesn't get to really finish the question, and Gourley replies, "It was me," and I don't think we could actually believe we were hearing this, Mm. and it was just such a shocking moment in. How how more shocked could you be by this case? Pamela's
1: former friend, Claire Forbes, was also called as a witness as she too received a confession from prison.
3: It was really daunting at the time. I mean, I was only 24 and, like, at the time... I remember the days, I think I had to be sat separately from all the other witnesses. I had to be sat separately because some of the witnesses were for her family. So I spent a lot of time sitting in the court, like, you know where the the cafe is where the solicitors can go and everything? If you look right up, there's a balcony Mm -hmm. way up there. Well, I ended up just being sat up there myself the whole time until they called me in. It was like three days sat up there just waiting. And then I was on the stand for quite a while as well.
1: How did you find the the court experience?
3: <sighs> really just surreal. It was just a bit surreal, the whole thing. I probably only looked over once or twice at her in particular, and one time she looked at me and the rest of the time she just sat stony-faced staring forward.
1: And the expression on her face when she did look at you? When she
3: looked at me, it was kind of like, I can't believe you've done this to me like that you've not kept my secret and I just didn't care.
1: As well as the jury and members of the press listening closely, Melanie's mother, Susan Patrick, was finally learning what had happened to her daughter. She even bravely endured the very graphic evidence given by pathologist, Dr. James Grieve.
2: I was very conscious of the fact that that Melanie's mother stayed in the court uh, while I was giving the evidence. In fairness, absolutely, objectively, I cannot let that interfere. Um, It's it's a funny, it's a funny thing, um, giving evidence, and it's extremely stressful for
8: everybody.
7: It's your baby. You want to know. You want to know what happened there. And you kept thinking, "Oh, what today? And it's the things that comes out, kind of things that you didn't get told.
1: As the Crown's case drew to a close, it was time for the defence to finally reveal their position. Pamela Solicitor Shane Campbell knew they had an uphill battle to persuade the jury of her innocence.
2: Her position then was that, uh, because the evidence that we had up to that point had clearly shown that um, Chris Taylor and Pamela had been seen uh, to walk back into town at around about um, seven, half seven or something of that nature in the morning. Uh, There was evidential material from witnesses in the downstairs flat directly underneath Melanie to the effect that they had heard some sort of a fracas and some shouting muffled screams, um, items being thrown about and dislodged. uh, And they were pretty sure that that had taken place I can't remember, it was half eight, nine o'clock-ish or something like that. There was also, strangely enough, the evidence of Melanie's alarm clock, which I think had been dislodged in the course of the struggle.
8: They said that time had literally stood still at 8.55 in the morning because an alarm clock, obviously in the the scuffle or whatever went on inside that um, flat, It had fallen over and the battery had got dislodged and it had stopped at 8.55.
2: So, the issue that became of crucial importance was was the time at which the murder had been committed. Pamela was now saying that effectively the murder had taken place in the early hours of Saturday morning. And again, the evidence had shown from CCTV uh, cameras... Uh, had shown that both Pamela and Chris Taylor had been seen in a taxi in the early hours of Saturday morning. They had stopped at the Bank of Scotland uh, at um, Rosemount uh, and had made an attempt, as it turned out, an unsuccessful attempt to get cash at that point. They had then returned home to the flat on Great Western Road. Pamela's position then was they had decided together that they would go and effectively rob Melanie. And she said that from her point of view, that was all that was going to happen. And she went down to Melanie's flat with Chris Taylor with the sole intention, from her point of view, of committing a robbery. Her position was that they had gone to the door, they had knocked on the door, Melanie had answered, they'd pushed their way in. Her position was that she was then looking for cash and then according to Pamela Chris Taylor had produced a knife and in the ensuing scuffle with Melanie uh, he had inflicted the fatal blows, and that that effectively was the way in which the situation had played out and then they had returned to their flat she had discarded um, her clothing uh, which was blood-stained, and her position was that because she was in such close proximity, that's why her clothing was blood-stained.
1: I think she said also she turned, she turned Melanie's body over.
2: Yes, she yes, said, that's right, that's right. Yes, yes, yes. So that's yeah another reason why there would have been um, blood uh, contact with her clothing. They had then returned to uh, their flat, uh, and then uh, at around about half seven, they had walked into town together. So the timeline became absolutely crucial uh, because clearly, um, from certainly from the police point of view and I think even from the defense point of view, it was accepted that Chris Taylor was effectively removed from the situation from 7.30 a.m. onwards and couldn't realistically have had any involvement if the murder had taken place any later than 7.30am. So the timing became crucial and clearly then the evidence from both the downstairs neighbour and the clock became absolutely pivotal.
1: Despite these claims, forensic scientist Chris Ganicliffe's evidence was that the blood staining on Pamela's clothing showed extensive contact with the bleeding victim. He, too, was surprised by the new version of
9: events being presented to the court.: and it was sort of quite left of field because I think you know when Chris Taylor was taking a stand, it was, it was quite oh, this people were taken quite aback by this as a as a defense because yeah. it wasn't really necessarily expected. If her account was true,
1: Chris's clothes would have been heavily bloodstained, and to the point where if you're walking up to the main street of Aberdeen Union Street to get a bus, you'd think that people would
9: maybe notice if his clothing was bloodstained. Someone would suppose that really, if he 's involved to a similar degree, he would have to be bloodstained to the same extent so where 's his clothing where 's that gone? You, know, you would need an account for that as to to, to where that 's deposited what 's happened to all of, all of that clothing and we don 't have any indications elsewhere of any of any DNA from him. What we do have is lots of indications of of Pamela elsewhere, looking at the clothing, looking at what' we found in those black bin bags within her room. Uh, looking at what we found elsewhere within the within the bedroom and within the flat it's clear that she sustained an injury, she's been bleeding As looked through the bedroom, uh, look for the drawers within there uh, What we've got on the clothing indicates the wearer of that clothing which is all female clothing of a size 8, size 12 so you'd have to question then who could wear it if it's not her all of that is very heavily bloodstained, implicating them in very intimate, protracted contact with Melanie. Uh, so one of the questions in court, I, I seem to remember, was, you know, to what extent would you get bloodstained if you were in this sort of contact? Is this what you would see? You know, because uh, whatever sort of activity might it might it be, and it is the sort of thing you might expect to have there been a protracted struggle, and she was involved. That's how that's how the clothing might have become stained. We can see from. Uh, blood stains on it, like blood drips and blood spots. She's been there when blood is being actively shed and projected through the air. So she's there right when these events are occurring. However, there was one blood spot which could throw doubt on the Crown's case. DNA matching Chris Taylor had been found in one of the blood stains that was outside of the door to the flat, uh, specifically the door to the living room of Melanie. And it's present in a mixture. So what we had is a blood stain, which, when it was analysed, gave a mixture of DNA matching uh, Melanie and matching Chris Taylor. There's 70% of
1: Pamela's DNA, 20% of Melanie, and 10% of Chris Taylor.
9: So it's difficult to, to read significance into what proportions you get because it doesn't necessarily have any great significance. Some people are more prone to deposit their DNA on things they handle and, and so on. What we do know is that you can secondarily transfer DNA quite readily. So we could shake hands when we meet. You could pick up a glass of water a few minutes later. On that glass of water, we then swab it for DNA. We'll find a mixture of DNA from you and potentially from me. But I haven't touched a glass of water. Only you've picked it up, but you've transferred my DNA via your hand. So it's possible, indeed likely that's the explanation for what we're seeing there, is that what we're finding is Chris Taylor's DNA just transferred in that stain.
2: It would have been absolutely remiss of us, from a defence point of view, not to highlight that. You know, if our position is that um, the uh, primary person involved was Chris Taylor, then anything which linked him to the scene of the crime had to be utilised by the defence. Clearly, as you've referred to, The experts would have been able to explain that, uh, although we would have been highlighting that. uh, And from a defence point of view, at times all you can do is uh, raise an issue which may or may not uh, be enough to form a reasonable doubt in the mind of the juror. Because from a defence point of view, don't forget, the defence don't require to prove anything. All they have to do is raise a reasonable doubt in the mind of a juror. And it's for the prosecution to prove beyond reasonable doubt.
4: The thing with juries, it seems to be that the smaller the blood spot, the more important the evidence is. Um, Again, it could be explained away and um, uh, an explanation given uh, for it. The fact that there's a blood spot with three different elements from three different people doesn't really prove anything. It's the circumstances in which an explanation is given for that blood spot the Crown had one and the defence
1: had another. With transference the most likely explanation, there was no forensic evidence to conclusively place Chris Taylor at the scene. Then two men separately came forward during the trial to claim Chris had admitted his involvement to them. The first was deemed wholly unreliable and had a history and convictions for making false allegations. However, the second man, Peter Cumming, was a friend of Chris.
2: Peter Cumming was saying that during the course of these conversations, mid-trial, Chris Taylor had admitted to him that he had certainly been involved and that he had a knife. uh, And uh, these conversations uh, had taken place when they were smoking heroin um, and that he was, uh, you know, a reasonably good friend with Chris Taylor. So having taken a statement from Peter Cumming to that effect... um, I was of the view that that was certainly much more credible than the first individual who had come forward. Uh, For a start, he was a friend of Chris Taylor, so it seemed to me that it would be unusual uh, that a friend uh, or an acquaintance even would be prepared to come to court and incriminate such a friend or an acquaintance uh, in such a serious allegation as was before the courts.
1: Called as a last-minute defence witness, Mr Cummings' evidence didn't quite add up. He told the court that Chris had told him, I had the knife against her throat. I then covered her head with a bag. But there was no evidence of a bag being used on Melanie or at the scene. He also said that they were both on heroin at the time of these conversations, which would make them drift in and out of sleep.
2: Obviously these would have been pinpointed and highlighted by the advocate deputy, the prosecutor, uh, and obviously... Um, the jury would have had to consider his evidence in the whole and decide whether or not it was it was credible.
1: The defence's final play was for the jury to be persuaded by Pamela herself. Dressed in black, top to toe as she had been on the morning of October 9th, 1999, the 20-year-old petite chef finally stood in the witness box. Her quiet voice, combined with the hearing challenges of Judge Lord Marnock things didn't quite go to plan for QC Edward Turgosky.
4: With Lord Marnock, who is now retired and was a very respected judge, he um, was rather deaf and um, he would interrupt on occasions uh, during a trial to make sure that he had got something noted. My view was that um, these interruptions were unfair and um, were, were calculated. As in my view were calculated to put her in a bad light uh, in front of the jury.
1: When you were actually in the middle of it do you recall your feeling or what was going through your mind of oh gosh this is not going how I want it to be going because this is not as smooth as I'd like yes, it to be with these yes, interruptions? absolutely.
4: At one stage I sat down uh, I think much to Mr, uh, Lord Marnach's uh, annoyance uh, I just sat down because uh, I was standing there for long periods of time while he was Uh, questioning the witness back and forward.
1: Pamela Gurley told the court she was drugged up when she and then boyfriend Chris Taylor arrived back at her flat. She said he was pissed off at having no money and suggested they rob someone in the building. She said he took the knife, I didn't think he would use it and added that she thought he was just going to use it to scare Melanie. She claimed she was at Melanie's coffee table retrieving her wallet and by the time I looked back Melanie and Chris were struggling. He was going at her with the knife from side to side. During cross-examination, she was asked if she would lie when it suited her. She replied, possibly, yes. And you admit that either the version you gave in court or the version you gave to the police on the taped interview has to be a lie. Yes, it is. When the jury retired, they had to decide which one was the truth.
7: You're never ever sure and when you hear it all like that and it gets complicated and you're listening to all this and you think, oh, what if, what if? You didn't, you didn't kinda until the final thing, and these jurors come back and think, do they think it's him? You've
8: got absolutely no idea of what they're thinking. Um, but they do say that if the jury comes back and they don't look at the accused, they've definitely found them guilty.
4: In our system, if the uh, accused person gives evidence and they are believed, or it raises a reasonable doubt in the minds of the jury as to the guilt of that accused person, that's sufficient. Um, no other evidence has to be led on behalf of the accused person. That would have been in the end of it.
1: On the next episode of the storyteller Murder Most Foul, the verdict, the reaction, and finally, it's time for me to track down the killer. The storyteller Murder Most Foul is written, produced and edited by me, Isla Draqueur. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes or Acast. And there's more information about the case on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram.